0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, June 21st, the Beyonce and her husband edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and here with me in Slate's DC studio... We have Latifa Lyles, a vice president at the National Network to End Domestic Violence and the former director of the Women's Bureau at the Labor Department under President Barack Obama. Latifah, we're so happy to have you back on the podcast for the second time.
2: I am so excited. It's been – I've been waiting with bated breath. So this is <laughs> – this is my whole, my whole month. <laughs> and joining us from New York, we're
1: so lucky to have the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, the inimitable June Thomas.
0: No imitating me now.
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you for having
1: me, Christina. Before we get started, I want to congratulate Latifa, who had a bit of a victory last night. Can you tell us about uh, your big night?
2: My big night. So on the ballot for D.C., my first time ever, I was just elected Committee woman uh, for the DC State Democratic whoop, whoop, whoop. Party, um, and it was great twenty two thousand votes, and for me individually, it was very exciting, <laughs> wow. um, and it was awesome. So I'm a, I'm an elected person. That's as of huge. this morning, well, I have to be sworn in or something, I'm sure, but it was, it, it, it's, it's, it's good times, good times.
0: As far as the waves is concerned, you are already an elected official. and
3: you know, <laughs> We have the extra level of respect for you already. I think right.
0: that's the one really interesting thing that
1: happened in the D.C. primary last night. So we're happy to have you on the podcast. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the week's biggest musical release, Everything is Love, the joint album from Beyonce and her husband, uh, Mr. Knowles Carter, Jay-Z. Then we're going to talk about the issue that has been dominating the public conversation of the past few weeks, the Trump administration's policy of separating young children from their parents at the border and placing them in detention camps. Uh, And finally, we'll take a bit of a lighter topic, uh, comedian Cameron Esposito's new stand-up special, Rape Jokes, in which she mines her own experiences with homophobia and sexual assault for humor. Also today in our Slate Plus segment, where we take a topic and rate it from 1 to 10 on how sexist it is, we have a great question from a listener. Is it sexist when offices lock the women's bathroom but not the men's? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member and you want to hear how sexist it is to lock a women's bathroom and not a man's, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, before we get into that discussion, we have two items of business. First of all, thank you to everybody who's applied for the production assistant role. We have had so many great applicants send their info in. So many that we're no longer accepting applications, but thank you to everyone who's applied. It's quite an impressive bunch, as I understand. Secondly, we hope to meet many of you in a month. Here in D.C., we're having a live show at the Hamilton on Tuesday, July 17th. Tickets go for $20 to $30, but if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get 30% off we're going to have special guests, a musical performance. It's going to be me, Hannah, June, and Verilyn. If you do want to buy tickets, which you do, you can go to slate.com slash live, and uh, there's more details there as well. All right, first up, we have Everything is Love, the joint album from the Noels carter family. We are lucky to have Noel's Carter Scholar, our <laughs> producer Verilyn Williams, here with us today to help us unpack it. Verilyn, we're so happy to have you.
3: I am so happy to be here. I was telling um Danielle, who is an engineer over in d c, that I felt I feel like, all of my experiences have led me to this moment. <laughs> all my years of loving Beyonce and you know working on the waves, the rebranding—I just feel like it was all culminating in this exact moment. So, I'm wow,
1: ready. that's few people will find that in their career. This is really impressive. Um,
0: I'm just shocked though that uh, Christina, when you said we have, we're you know a, a Knowles Carter scholar, I was sure you were talking about me because my expertise in all things <laughs> Knowles Carter is kind of you know, is famed and extensive.
2: Carter, June. It's Carter. Knowles Carter. (laughs) You you framed it a little bit when you said, you know, a new album by Beyonce and uh, her husband, which I thought was (laughs) very apropos for am
1: I'm betraying my biases here. So, June, since you've uh, set yourself up as such an expert, why don't you tell Mm. us a little bit about the album? Indeed
0: I can. So, Everything is Love is kind of the third part of a trilogy about the Knowles-Carter family, the Carter family's... uh, Uh, experiences started in 2016 with Lemonade in which Beyonce expressed her feelings after being cheated on. And I remember being on the Culture Gab Fest and claiming that we couldn't know for sure that she was talking about herself. (laughs) Maybe like any great poet, she was projecting just telling a story. Well, that turned out to be nonsense. She was indeed talking about a rift in the the most in this of the American royal marriage. Uh, And then last year, Jay-Z released an album, 444, in which he kind of gave his side of things. It was considered one of his least impressive albums, I would say. And then this year, with complete secrecy, at the end of a show in London, they announced that they had this entire nine-song album that nobody had known a thing about. The The Carters managed to have the level of secrecy known only in the Supreme Court, they managed to release <laughs> this album that knew, nobody knew anything about. It's got nine songs, and it's it's kind of about um, they're coming back together again. It's it's about love and marriage and and happiness, uh, and and some uh, some political views along the way. But basically, uh, the message I think that the Carters are sending is we're we're, we've, we're starting over. Everything's great. Love in the summer and in the waves and uh, come on in
3: Let's make love in the summertime, yeah. Almost sands feet, sands, make plans to be in each other's arms, Yeah, Let it breathe.
0: Yeah. Let it breathe.
3: Yeah. I
0: wanna drown.
1: Verilyn since this is the pinnacle of your career up until this point. Um, can you give us a little context about where they're coming from? And, and it sounds like you love the album. I'm curious to hear uh, if it lives up to your expectations.
3: I mean, I feel totally biased. I've been trying to think critically about it for sure. Uh, But I do love it. Um, When I saw that on my Instagram feed, the project had dropped on Saturday and that the first single, Ape Shit, was accompanied by a visual that was filmed at the Louvre of all places. The Louvre, which I should mention, is one of my favorite places on the planet. And watching Beyonce and Jay-Z claim and dominate that space on so many levels with black bodies everywhere and the way they zoomed into art that had black people in them. It was so intentional. And I think it was one of my favorite things about Beyonce is that she is so everything is planned out. She is such like a diligent artist. And so I think in, in you know, since listening to it since Saturday nonstop, I first <laughs> have just had an amazing appreciation for the intentionality behind the album. The ways like June um, talked about this album being about their love, about them making it work. But I also see it as a continuation of a conversation they've been having. Like, we've been listening in on this conversation they've been having together, right? The Lemonade album, and then the 444, Jay-Z's album, and now this joint album. And I think I read somewhere that they initially were going to have a joint album from before, like with Lemonade. And then, you know, Jay-Z has just been as anyone would expect Beyonce's husband to do just <laughs> falling back uh, in a way that I so appreciate is just like he's clearly like it's not a world tour this is my wife's tour and he's fine with it um, and I'm just I guess I'm just like in awe um, but I do have you know I do have one critique that we can get into because I had to mm. I was like I have to be objective so I do have one thing that I can nitpick on all right
1: uh, do you want to leave that a cliffhanger or do I'll you
3: want to I'll leave us it a cliffhanger okay. cuz I don't want to like study your all <laughs> opinions of
1: the of the album. <laughs> I will say I uh, I I haven't forgiven Jay-Z yet. I don't know if I ever can. And I think Beyonce I completely agree with you, Verlin. I am I continue to be impressed by her intentionality. Her the fact that she's at the top of her game on every level of performance, uh, visually, musically, uh, it, her the way she approaches celebrity is really appealing mm-hmm. and admirable from my perspective. She's also made a fair amount of money, uh, projecting herself as a feminist. You know, she famously performed with the word feminist behind her. She uh, has sampled Chimamandi Ngozi Adichie's work. Um, And the fact that she that, you know, she that makes this album with Jay-Z that I didn't really see it as like a, a helpfully honest depiction of a marriage coming together. I felt like a lot of the especially the very last track that's sort of like, oh, we worked through this thing and now we're really happy or it, it kind of portrayed their struggle as something that they both had to approach from uh. From a place of similar responsibility, when it's Jay Z that fucked up, and I think a lot of the reviews that I've read of it of the album so far have been kind of similarly like, isn't it great that they're showing that you know you can work through a marriage and that all marriages hit rough spots? Well, it's not like a marriage hits a rough spot; it's that Jay Z did like betrayed her trust. Um, and I mean, good on her for making an insanely great album, Lemonade. Uh, out of this pain, and and I did enjoy this album. I think it's incredibly sexy. I I think the their descriptions of love really resonated with me. The depictions of Black America obviously didn't resonate with me personally, but I found them incredibly compelling. But at the end of it, I find the the entire I I find Jay Z's whole shtick kind of boring at this point. Like he's this sort of like swaggering manly man who has humbled himself before his wife he you know calls her a queen you know the idea that Beyonce has like come forward with this honest depiction of their marriage is it's is the wrong way to look at it that it only it would only reflect poorly on them that or that this would only be a flaw in their marriage because as a culture we sort of blame women when their husbands
3: cheat on them um, I think you touched a little bit on my one issue with it but I do think that when I watch beyonce and Jay-z talk about they're living in the world in which he's been unfaithful the trust has been broken it just feels so it resonates with me personally so like I can I've been there I know what that is and I don't necessarily think that you know the, the trust has been broken trying to rebuild that trust is her um, like just go, like just like forgiving him or giving him a pass. Like at the end of the day, it's hard, in my opinion, it's harder sometimes to stay and rebuild trust than it is to leave. And I don't know whether I'm breaking some kind of feminist code by saying <laughs> that. But no, no, you know, I think I I believe that. It, you know, I, I agree
2: with I agree with you in the sort of like you know the the shtick that you mentioned, Christina. But honestly, he seems more like an accessory. I mean, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like I I think a lot of the the relationship drama is is sort of that, and I think it just hits the notes as just really good performance art at the end of the day. And I think she's managed. I mean, in some ways in his own career but then with her with her he do, he doesn't seem to hold the same stature when he's mm-hmm. with her now i feel mm-hmm. like you know it's her show he's there he's part of the you know the exhibits on display at the louvre that she's decided to curate <laughs> but you know what i mean like it, it definitely feels like it, it's 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 her she's the director even in the style of the video at the louvre you know he i felt like he was very much in her image in a in a certain way in terms of like the style and the dress and the colors and the it just was not very him i feel like it was more Absolutely. um you know about the piece and not about him at all in a strange way i don't know i just i just kind of felt like you know this is this is what i need from you to, right now and it needs to be this suit and this color in your head it just it just <laughs> felt very like her the whole spirit and the whole flavor of the thing in a way that um, you know i didn't feel like he was much of an influence just visually which yeah. maybe was intentional um who knows who knows i but i definitely think that the the issues around blackness and some of the some of the lyrics were really compelling like drilling down a little bit separate from the relationship stuff i think that artistically and politically they were able to do a nice smooth presentation of sort of where we are today and one of my favorite, one of my favorite lyrics was, um, <laughs> "They even bite in cornrows. Uh, put on your scarecrows. <laughs> put your scarecrows up. Mm. And I made my own waves. Now they anti-title. And I just sort of think that you know, like the 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 bits and pieces of that really clever lyricism yeah. was was kind of like. Just exactly what it needed, and that was his insertion into the story. But generally, the story was—you know—he's in the story, but the story's not about him.
0: Marilyn, you've been cliffhangering us with you with your uh, critique. What? So get to it.
3: I mean, so it, it's kind of around some of the things Christina has already brought up. Um, it's it's in the song titled Seven One Three, and it's when Jay Z celebrating not just his wife Beyonce, but also black women in general, like her, that you know has been able to endure. Yeah, you know. He he says
2: all the good girls that love hustle us To the mothers that put up with us To all the babies that suffer cause us We only know love because of you America's a motherfucker to us Lock us up, shoot us, shoot our self-esteem Down we don't deserve true love. Black Queen you rescued us You rescued us
3: You know, and so therefore, because of all the ways, you know, America has oppressed black men, you know, thank God that, you know, my black queen, quote unquote, has been able to rescue us. And I any time I you know, he was that was very much what he was saying in 444 as well. And I'm always just like, that's cool. But who gets to rescue black women? Right. And I think it's great that, you know, he can be a stand in for you know, maybe black men that have felt this way and have been able to put words, like he's giving voice to something that I don't want to discount. I think it's real. And I think it's, you know, maybe a lot of black women hear that and they feel validated in the ways they've had to sacrifice for their loves in their lives. But it also is just like, when are we going to get past this? Like, thank you for thanking me, but when can you be better? (laughs) Like, let me know, you know? And I think one of the reasons why I love, you know, the intentionality that I see in Beyonce is that I feel like she's, like, who's going to save us? I think black women. <laughs> you know, I listen to Beyonce and I feel, you know, like she says, your experience is the way you feel, your anger, your pain, your love, your your decision to stay, you know, th- you love be- despite, like, that is valid. And I think she's been able to give voice to that feeling. And that maybe is the way that I, you know, why I love this album more than I resent lines like that.
2: I agree completely with that. And it reminds me of something a little bit more serious, but totally relevant to this. And um, this question that folks are having about the criminal justice system and, you know, all the things that are wrong with it and, and how that how that an effect. And when there are instances of, really serious relationship problems that go beyond – cheating and not to like bring us way down but you know when we talk about issues of of violence and and manipulation and a a lot of the issues that you know we face and I work on every day that's a very big question I think that's centering the movement right now when we're trying to deal with a criminal justice system that um, is so flawed and Mm -hmm. so you know inherently biased and racist but at the same time there are women out there and there are black women who want justice Mm -hmm. um, but they also want um, fairness, but this idea that you know there are people who kind of you know kind of ride this. Well, you know if if you if you prosecute me or if you if you if you bring this up or if if we mm-hmm. if we talk about these issues in our community, then it's just going to invite the system into our families and to yeah. and and you don't want that. And so there's a it's a very very real conversation that I think is starting to be had with. You know, African-American and black women coming up and saying, look, you know, we have a story to tell in this issue of violence against women and me, too. That is, you know, completely um, different and has a lot more layers, including, um, you know, we're also fighting against an oppressive system. But at the same time, we're fighting for our lives. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you know, and so I think that it, it reminds me of that um that part where people are trying to make the hard decision about whether or not I can raise this issue of this very problematic person in my life. Mm -hmm. um, Or do I, you know, is that does that mean that I'm sort of, you know, buying into this really inherently terrible oppressive system. And that's a really hard thing for black women to toe. And um, it reminded me that lyric reminded me of that that person's issue that we're dealing with every day. But the reality is, it's like, you know, yeah, it's like a head-patting moment. It's like, oh, we're yeah. sorry, we're so it's, you know, we're sorry, we're so bad and when, you're like, so strong you can do better. and Yeah, but it's also <laughs> this whole this whole like wh- black women are the strong women and black mm-hmm. women are the, you know, we can endure anything and that goes back to, you know, a very very long time ago when that was definitely thought to be the case culturally and medically like, you know, we can just take it all and we will be okay.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting for me to think about from the perspective of how the culture views Beyoncé as this sort of um like like perfect you know uncriticizable like knows everything what she's doing completely deliberate um you know person who has the world at her feet and in that sense i uh i definitely can see the power in her saying like look my life's not perfect you know my husband cheated on me the me you know the woman who is sort of held up as like the ultimate in like mm-hmm. beauty and success and talent and smarts um And yeah, I guess the the thing that I'm trying to hold in my head now is that the that it is powerful because we blame women when their husbands cheat on them. But it also is sad that that has had to be this entire segment of her oeuvre is like Mm. her standing by this guy, Jay-Z, who who not only, you know, betrayed the commitments of his marriage, but then also uh, like kind of reduces his lesson to like you know men are just these bumbling idiots who can't help but hurt the people around them
2: boys will be boys
3: yeah but i think what's revolutionary about what beyonce does is that she's able she's she's been able to Take ownership of that story, right? So it's not like the outsiders looking in at, oh, it's speculating, like, is Jay Z cheating on her? Like, she's just like, boom, lemonade, right? And, <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about, I don't know if you all saw the story of XX Tacion, the um, Atlanta rapper that was just killed. um You know, and there have been all these, you know, everyone's like, wow, this is such a, like, I can't believe he was gunned down. Like, he had so much potential. And then, like, right after that, there are pictures of the way that he's like, brutalized the mother of his child so much that she can't see out of one of her eyes, right? And I think like the when I think about that, it's like we would have never really heard her story if it wasn't for the fact that the person that vict- that she was that victimized her was shot down, you know? And so I think, you know, in thinking about the ways in which black women's stories get told and when they're valid and when we hear about them, I think Beyonce has been able to take ownership in a way that I don't I don't know, <laughs> maybe also Oprah, maybe like uh, Ava DuVernay, you know, you can list them off, but they're all at a certain level that I can only aspire to. <laughs> wow,
1: that's a, yeah, that's a really good point, Marilyn. I I think y- that you should have the last word as our resident expert on the issue. Um, so listeners, I am really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the Noels carter makeup album. You mean Beyonce
3: featuring her husband? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I, let us know, is it a, a picture of a strong marriage? Is it a retrograde depiction of a woman standing by her man? Um, it's currently on Spotify Premium, but only for another week and a half, I think. Um, you know, Beyonce, who had a great dig against Spotify on the album, would probably rather have you buy it on iTunes or... At Sam Goody or wherever people buy music. Sam Goody. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's where people buy their CDs. I think her her strong preference would be on Tidal. Tidal. Um, So email us. We're at thewaves at slate.com. We're going to read your emails. All right. Our next topic for today is family separation at the border. Several weeks ago, the Trump administration began enforcing a new policy separating children from their parents when they cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Many of these people are asylum seekers. The children are being detained alone um, in converted Walmarts. They're preparing tent cities. Um, Between April and May, nearly 2,000 children have been separated from uh, slightly fewer adults at the border. Uh, The parents are sent to jail and referred for criminal prosecution. Latifa, what have you been reading about this?
2: Yeah, so, you know, this is this is really captured and captivated um us in a way that folks are really galvanized and the call to do something as soon as we can right away is is hopefully getting louder and louder and louder um by multiple voices across multiple communities and hopefully, you know, that's the bright spot in all of this. But you know, when you when we think about and talk about this very very politicized very difficult issue over the years. it's often used as a wedge issue in ele- you know election cycles with politicians. It's the big thing we can't p- pass on the hill because it's too complicated and no one wants to take a vote. People do want to take a vote. so you know th- the thing about this case and the thing about I should say there are a couple of cases, but the thing about the recent uh, decision is that the the human face. In all of this has become so, so crystal clear in a way that I think for many of us, those who even follow these issues, um, you know, in, in multiple ones, we can sort of talk about this and get through it. But I think the, the humanity of, of what's happening and frankly, what's been happening to families for years and years and years is is, is in the spotlight and is highlighted in such a way um, that, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg, Uh, This this recent issue with separation of families and, um, you know, listening to some of the attorneys and others who are advocates for the families, the parents are just the trauma is really, really um, hard to overemphasize is what we've heard from a lot of folks on the front line, both on both sides, including, um, you know, parents really not being able to focus on, you know, anything else but their kids and really nobody having the infrastructure or the expertise on either side of this, uh, whether it's dealing with the children, dealing with the parents who have been traumatized, dealing with the kids who are, I mean, we can go on and on about where are the children, where are they going, who's caring for them. Um, You know, the other complication here is that where they could be released to families who are here in the United States, people are obviously very, very, reluctant to come forward to claim children because of their uh, threat or fear of being arrested or detained themselves. So um, in many, many different angles that you look at this, it's it's an impossible situation um, that's only going to get worse if something is not done. And multiple examples have been put out. I mean, this idea that we, people have used the term camps and, you know, prisons and cages and, you know, v- you know visu- visually, um, folks have said, you know, this is just hysteria and this isn't really happening. But if you think about this logistically, um, you know, we're not talking about, you know, advanced social workers or, you know, childcare professionals who, <laughs> you know, are trauma informed or even have any experience dealing with anything like this ever before. So in addition to you know this this population of kids that we're creating we really don't have the resources to to mitigate any of the trauma at all, let alone coming up with a process to reunite these families. And unfortunately, um, the grim side of this is is this idea that some of these children are never going to be reunited with their parents. And then the second question is, so then what? I mean, you know, one thing that my my mother, who's a, is a longtime social worker brought up is from her perspective is that, you know, we don't even have a, a system in the United States to take care of our own uh, orphaned or you know abandoned children or ch- children who are in the foster care system, which is severely broken and you know m- you know marred with with issues um, at various state and federal agencies, so that we can deal with um, you know newly separated children in any productive and nurturing way is you know it's just not. It's it's magic. It's all magical thinking. It's, there's no op, there's no positive outcome. The
0: fact that you have just you know named about fifteen different huge issues that are you know top of mind right now that are that everyone uh, that, you know, that has a heart is worried about. I mean, that just shows the the sort of the depth of the situation and the fact that it is not accidental. You know, the fact that uh, these policies have been changed, that children and families are being used, you know, in this incredibly inhuman, cruel way as pawns to try and set a different kind of policy to essentially discourage uh, migration In a way that is not dissimilar from the people who, you know, the nations, uh, the politicians who don't rescue uh, people who are on sinking boats, who are fleeing, uh, trying to get to Europe. We've kind of lost sight of the humanity of the people whose children are being taken from them. They're not doing it for economic reasons. They're doing it to keep their children alive and and to stay alive. And then their children are being taken from them with no clear vision of how they'll be reunited and put into a system that intentionally involves multiple agencies so that even if people had good intentions, it would be very hard to keep track of them. And it's not at all clear that people have good intentions.
1: And even if people are coming here for economic reasons or – I mean, I think there is no, no reason that's – no intention that should be so invalid that yeah. a child should be separated from his or her parents – I think the thing that disturbs me most about this situation is that it's a political strategy from two parts, from the fact that they're using abuse as a deterrent. They've been very clear about that, that they're hoping that the inhumanity of this policy will be enough to keep people in their desperate home situations in Central American countries. And then it's a political strategy to win the midterm elections, I believe. I think that there are enough people who support this policy. Um, it's an unpopular policy, but only only among two thirds of Americans. Um, two thirds of people in the in the most recent poll said that they don't approve of this policy. That means a third are, uh, support it, and they're betting, rightly I fear, that the Republican base will be energized by the sight of migrant people being abused. Um, And some of the most compelling and heartbreaking things that I've read about this have focused on the irreversible physical trauma that a child goes through when they're put in a situation like this. Laura Bush, who wrote what I thought was a very smart and brave and thoughtful essay or uh, opinion piece in the Washington Post uh, against the policy, uh, wrote about japanese internment camps and how the people who were interned there um you know decades after after they were released uh experienced uh much higher rates of cardiovascular failure premature death the the children and parents who are enduring this trauma at the border right now uh even when the policy ends will not recover and and that's uh you know, I'm not a person of faith. But I kind of accidentally found myself praying last night cuz I really just lost hope that the mechanisms of democracy are will be able to solve this problem, especially when there are so many people in this country who just see it as a political issue and not a
2: a moral one. Yeah. And that's where we stand. I think you're you're you know, th- Folks coming out on this from all walks of life, and the very good essay that you mentioned by the former first lady, and you know, it's there are times. I think Michelle Obama, I said there, there are times when um, you know we we really do. There's there's no space for partisan discourse in this conversation, and we have to extract it from that. And even the discussion about how, what people can and will do about this as it relates specifically to midterm elections and, you know, how people are feeling back in their district is, you know, very disheartening um, because, you know, it's, it's, it's really beside the point at this, at this stage. And um, I think in addition to the, the families and the children, um, who are going to be affected for the rest of their lives by this? You know, I think that there are folks who are, you know, working with these families, our systems. There, uh, this is going to have a rippling effect that is going to be a stain for decades to come. Um, um, not only for the families but I think for 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 us and for communities communities affected communities who know the families and are part of the families and connected to the families so you know I think it's it's important to enumerate the number of children and the 2000 that are being affected but I think we really you know the the impact on all of us moving forward is 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 unfathomable you know it's something that we really we we haven't conceived of.
0: I'm not going to suggest that there's anything positive that can come of this because it's clearly just a massive exercise in cruelty and and dehumanization but it is a massive spotlight and I think that although it is extraordinarily depressing and, and a much stronger word uh, that a third of Americans think that this is okay it has also, I have to take some uh comfort in the level of the outrage that, you know, very that experienced, uh, you know, people on television are breaking down in tears when they see and when they talk about this, that people are donating like millions of dollars to small organizations, which is Felix Salmon wrote in Slate because it's being used uh, to pay for immigration bonds is actually something that even a small organization can deal with a huge influx of money, that people are um, doing something, that I think it can be something that really mobilizes opposition, that that kind of overcomes that numbness that some people, that many of us have been experiencing, um, that maybe this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And unfortunately, I think it will also break thousands of children's and adults' backs too.
1: Yeah. All right. I think that's, let's leave it there. Listeners, if you would like to email us with your thoughts on this issue, we would love to read them. We're at the waves at slate.com. Um, and let us know also any, any good organizations or, or direct actions that you've been taking um, on this issue. I, you know, slate published a piece uh, about different organizations you can donate to and different actions you can take. And we're hopefully continuing to update that list. Our last topic today, <laughs> rape jokes, <laughs> which which sounds uh, equally heavy, but it's not, I promise. Um, rape jokes is the title of an hour-long special that um, the fantastic comedian Cameron Esposito has released on her own as a streaming video on her website. It's uh, CameronEsposito.com. I think she released it uh, earlier this month. The show, it seems at first like a like a straightforward traditional stand-up show, but um, not too far into it. I think just about two minutes into it, it becomes clear that it's something a little bit different. Um, she tells the audience that she's a survivor of sexual assault, just kind of as an aside, very quickly, almost as a setup to a joke. Um, and most of the set is about very intimate and personal stuff about her sexual assault, about... Uh, her first period, figuring out she's gay, um, dealing with homophobia in a very Catholic community. It's its very honest and at times gets a little more serious than a traditional stand-up set. I honestly found myself getting slightly uncomfortable. I was watching it alone at home in my bed, and it kind of just felt like she was speaking to me personally. Um, but it But that discomfort is alleviated by how fucking funny she is she 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 kind of takes this tack I was trying to think about what I find so interesting about it it's like she's trying it's like when you tell a really sad or disturbing story to a friend but maybe just like an acquaintance so you don't want to make it too heavy Mm -hmm. so you kind Mm -hmm. of add a little joke or like a little self-deprecating remark um and she's a professional comedian so her jokes are actually really funny Mm -hmm. and there are these entire tangents in the middle of these really horrible stories about um like when she busts her knee uh, alone in a hotel room and then the EMTs show up and she's like, oh God, when are they going to figure out I'm gay? And is, are they going to treat me well? You know, And it's really, really funny. Yeah. Um, or when she gets ringworm on her face uh, after kissing a woman for the first time and she <laughs> thinks that it's the devil punishing her. Um, and I rarely will laugh out loud at a At stand-up comedy, it mostly makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, God, is the audience going to laugh? Like I just – I always put myself in their position. Same thing with watching improv. I can't do it. (laughs) Um, But I honestly want to watch this again. I want to watch it with uh, different groups of friends because I think that everyone will
2: get something different out of it. I'm curious – how you guys took it for, you know, first of all, when I, when I hear like personally, when I'm like rape jokes <laughs> and then it
1: make you super excited to know, <laughs> not only
2: that, but I think that it's, um it's something that people joke about, you know, in a very, very unhelpful way. So at first I was like, okay, someone's trying again to say, you know, there's a difference between there's a huge group of comedians in the comedian world to say sort of like, It's comedy. It's supposed to be funny. It's not supposed to be respectful. It's not supposed. But the reason this is so great was because it's taking these difficult subjects and being funny and not being offensive. You know, so there's often the. Well, I made that joke because people would laugh, even though it's like horrible, as opposed to something that is actually refreshingly personal and self-deprecating humor is the best kind of humor in my opinion. I I think comedians who do that well uh, tend to make me laugh and to be very, very like being very, very authentic. Um, But this is something, you know, i be, I'm just curious about other survivors and like how they respond to it. And um, you know, it's the kind of thing to your point about feeling like if watching this alone different than like watching it with other people and like, could I watch it with other people? And sort of, you know, like in the audience even, are there people who are like, I could watch this, but I can't be in the audience? Because, because there's also that sort of like how you're reacting in the moment. There's lots of things happening in the fields that are happening and what you're thinking about. And they're just like embarrassing moments. And there's like, sh- you know, sh- you know, there's all these things that, that come up. So, you know, I think it's refreshing. I'm always, you know, sort of, you know dig my nails into the table when I hear about (laughs) comedians taking on difficult subjects that are triggers for people so um this was very this was like a very very pleasant surprise that um especially because the person's really funny obviously that really helps but it's also a personal experience because um you know so much of when we talk about these things in culture and in in media and in any kind of entertainment it's usually not to the benefit of like moving the discourse forward in any possible way so yeah. that was kind of cool so i was i was i was excited about the the possibilities of of that but i would be very interested to know like how different audiences and how people who are in different communities dealing with survivors would respond
0: yeah it's funny because i remember and it's really the only specific thing i remember in take my wife which was the uh, show, the the sitcom that uh, Esposito did with her wife, Rhea Butcher, um, was when, it, you know, it's it was based on their real life. And so some of the scenes were set in, like, stand-up clubs. And there was a, a kind of a backstage scene where they're in, you know, in the green room, kind of, and this male comedian is, like, talking about, you know, defending doing rape jokes. And, and one of them says, I think it's Esposito, says, you know he says something about, well, like oh, I didn't know you'd been sexually assaulted, and another person says, "So was I so and then several people um kind of break the fourth wall and say, "So was I, and it's incredibly powerful <clears throat> while at the same time being part of you know like a bit you know like it's 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 both this powerful moment and kind of social commentary. And also part of, you know, just this continuing story of life backstage, you know, in a a stand-up club. And so I had a feeling that she would handle it well. And it's, I mean, just one thing that I think we've all kind of nodded at is that she's an amazing performer that, you know, in this idea that uh, a person doing stand-up, you know, when everyone in the room, their attention is on them, they have to control their emotions. They can't, you know, they have to kind of they have to signal very subtly that, okay, this bit's funny, this bit's touching, this bit's, but all, all without letting the audience know that that's going on. And I think she does that amazingly well. She, you could tell that even, you know, I, I think when a, when a up audience is being filmed, there's always a little bit of self-consciousness, but nevertheless, you could see she had the audience entirely in the palm of her hand. I thought there were some incredibly funny bits. And, you know, I've watched a lot of lesbian comedy over the years and, nothing was like soup she didn't do any of the old familiar standbys and there were some things that were you know I was just so glad to hear I mean there's a there's a bit where she talks about how with her first girlfriend people would keep asking them are you sisters are you sisters are you sisters let's just hear a little bit from the special we'd be sitting at dinner together at the dining hall wearing matching umbros
3: Sharing one piece of spaghetti betwixt our lips like two ladies or two tramps. Our heads growing ever closer together, and one of our classmates would be like, How y'all know each other?
0: What are you, twin sisters? We got sisters. All the time. And sometimes we got twins. And I need to add a detail that makes this better. My first girlfriend was and continues to be Korean.
1: Oh, my God, June. I was going to bring that up, too. I know. And I it know. it's too real.
0: You know, exactly. I know, Christina, that's something you've talked about, you know, that happens to every lesbian. And then she has this payoff, which she kind of almost... You know, she doesn't play it, play it too hard, but she, then she says, "And you know, the thing is, she was Korean, and then, then, and, and it's like, right. she, and
1: Cameron Esposito is not is yeah. not
0: Korean, and like, <laughs> and she kind of does a thing where uh, Latifa, you know, you said that she, you know, she she doesn't. She doesn't apologize. She doesn't try to be inoffensive, although there's one thing that she says there, which is like, you know, not that blended families, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like she kind of maybe did something to be, you know, respectful that she didn't need to do because mm. we all know what she's talking about. And that's just funny. And and uh, yeah, we know that families don't always have to look alike. But that was not what those people were talking about. Um, and I think even, too, when, she, you know, when she gets to her experience, you know, this. Actually, talking about her sexual assault is not done, you know, it's, it's, she does it. It's very open, it's very out there, but it's a tiny part of the show. And what, what, so much of what happens in the show, apart from really funny jokes, are really explaining why people don't report sexual assaults, why they think it's okay. And I think she does that in a really smart way. Way that, you know, is just good writing and good insight. And I think she's really smart about the motivations behind people wondering if they've, you know, I'm sure, like, again, a lot of outsiders like, how do you not know? And she explains how you don't know and why why people, why some people just don't feel able to report their sexual assaults. And I thought that was both, like, it was amazing to have just really, really funny comedy and really write on, um, you know, tell the people, you know, she's really preaching and she's really, um, you know, explaining something really important.
1: The other thing that I really loved about this show um, from a queer perspective was it felt like I think between, you know, Take My Wife, uh, her podcast Query, which I recommended a couple episodes ago uh, on this very podcast, um, I feel like she's bringing... Queer inside jokes to the mainstream in a way that is very honest and authentic and pure. I mean, it's not like she's not selling out. It doesn't feel like she's sanding down any sort of uh, uncomfortable edges mm-hmm. or dumbing anything down or making yeah. anything more palatable for a straight audience. But clearly, she, you know, her comedy would appeal to a straight audience. But she has a whole bit about, you know, how she loves going down on someone who's on their period. She <laughs> makes a fisting joke that's sort of like a a throwaway line for people who were paying close attention. Um, and I'm curious to see how she will shape the rest of her industry. I mean, she's very vocal in her special about uh, criticizing – the faults of her own industry. And she has this uh, sort of braggadocio that I found very appealing where she's like, oh, you say that you can't do comedy without saying all these offensive words? Well, then I'm a better comedian than you right? because I use different words. And like, I don't rely on the same five offensive words to to make people think I'm funny. Um, And I think that there's so few instances of like pure... Female sexual subjectivity in every medium. And what there is is just very homogenous, shaped through a commercial lens and a very male lens. And, you know, she released this thing herself. She for free. didn't even have to get a deal with Netflix. Yeah, for free. I mean, Everything about the way she did this was felt incredibly inventive to me, mm-hmm. and i'm I'm hoping that the rest of her industry is taking notice yeah
0: i mean it's, it it does feel that way that she you know she workshopped it so to speak, in small venues in small towns, and then she released it for free asking for you know and it's very prominently requesting donations for rain, and you know yeah, it's like she is she, she's America's hero now or that's that's how she feels. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you know, I think it's there's some the juxtaposition of the timing of it, I think is so great too, and just having myself you know, years ago, like loving comedy and then, you know, being in a room of people and then being kind of like, oh, that's a deal breaker. Sorry. No rape joke. Like literally Mm -hmm. like no rape jokes. That's my line. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, no, there's lots of lines, but that's one of them. (laughs) Um, I won't go into all of them. And like for people who I think are genuinely, and I'm just like, that's it. I'm turned off. No more. Done. And of course, what we know now, of course, is in a lot of these Situations where you have problematic people making jokes um, are also problematic people. Yeah, and we now know that a lot of people who are you know who are displaying and using this language are also um, you know not necessarily the nicest people, or have been found to be uh claims of a you know sexual assault or harassment themselves yeah, yeah. And, which to me was very like see i told you that wasn't funny <laughs> so and yeah. also another way too people say well which people can't make jokes anymore so the idea that she's like no no yeah you actually can make people like laugh and talk about these things. Personally, I think the timing of it is so great because of such of the oh, you know, when so, so many of the the Me Too men were falling, it's like, well, we're just not going to have that talent anymore, or yeah. like, what will we do for what will we do for laughs? You know, like, <laughs> what will I watch on Netflix? I don't know what to do. You know, so that's another piece of this. It's sort of like, no, really, yeah, there's space, you yeah. know, and we don't take it, and I think, or people don't take it, and the fact that she's taking it, I think um, the timing of it is brilliant. Agreed. Yeah.
1: All right, listeners, watch her special. It's at CameronEsposito.com. Let us know what you think uh, of her way of using humor to talk about these kind of unfunny issues and whether you think she's funny. I think it's time for recommendations now. June, do you want to
0: go first? Sure. In this heavy week, I have some, I guess, heavy recommendations, but actually I found them and have found them very uplifting. Um, Earlier... Uh, Christina, you mentioned not being a person of faith. And I, it's something that I've been thinking about because, you know, I went to church when I was a kid, but it's not something that has stayed with me. I don't think I am a religious person. But I one reason that that happened was that, you know, all my experience with church seemed to be about division, about casting out instead of welcoming. And it just felt like it was something that had nothing to do with me. And a couple of weeks ago, actually on the June 9th episode of Amicus, um, which was a fantastic episode overall. The first half is is Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern talking through really deeply the implications of the uh, masterpiece Cake Shop uh, Scotus decision. But then the second half is the Reverend Dr. William Barber, uh, who is uh, a preacher, I guess. I'm not quite sure what the term of art is, uh, but he's also very, very involved with you know the Poor People's Campaign, he's essentially in, in many ways kind of rekindling the work of Dr. King. And he spoke in the cadences of the black church about kind of progressives reclaiming the language of faith and reclaiming morality and not giving that ground to the right. And it was just so inspiring in a way to hear someone talk about welcoming the you know caring for the least of us caring for the sick for the cast out and it's a very it's just I mean he's a great talker I think a lot of people have found it inspiring and comforting and I really recommend it and uh, he also is featured um that is to say Reverend Barber is also featured in in something Dahlia uh, read her piece it's all too much we still have to care which is kind of a a treatise against numbness and about, you know, yeah, you have to keep caring because some people don't have a choice. Uh, And that was on the June 17th Trump cast. And there are some audio quotes from the Reverend Barber in that. And I think uh, that's what I've been kind of going back to, to to just kind of not lose hope in in recent days.
1: That sounds like a great recommendation, June. I am going to listen to him.
2: So um, this is mine. So uh, a writer that I read regularly, almost daily, is R. Eric Thomas, who is a staff, a senior staff writer at l.com He writes um, humor column. Uh, he's also a playwright, I believe, um, where he is in Baltimore. But he is one of these brilliant writers who can pivot so brilliantly and. He's all things Beyonce and the royal family, but then also is like following congressional hearings <laughs> with humor and everything we need. And so uh, over the past year, I have found such like a, a strong sense of like, you know, there's there's a way to balance this out a little bit. I mean, he cares about the things we care about. He's a he's he's a gay man married to um a minister, actually. So there's all there's that juxtaposition in his life. He's absolutely hilarious. He's a he's a black man um, who speaks also very much about his culture and growing up. But last week, um, you know, one of the things I decided um, a few weeks ago was that the the royal wedding was going to be sort of my 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 comfort, my like <laughs> security blanket from time to time, and so so his coverage of it was brilliant, but just just this week he wrote something um after having written a column about the detentions, including um his column last week that came up that said, "Welcome to America in two thousand and eighteen, where cages are not cages unless we say they are, and goes <laughs> into um you know just. Our double speak, and, you know, where this puts us and how we look as a nation and then specifics about the administration, another column. But the most recent column is about Prince Harry in a top hat, <laughs> um, which is called um, Prince Harry in a top hat looks like the hot young Mr. Monopoly of my dreams. <laughs> I was I thinking
0: shocked. of Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> yes.
2: And so it is just brilliant. And like he's the kind of person where you can just have a quick escape for the day, um, you know, have a very conscientious, funny, progressive person um, talking about the news of the day um, in a little escape and making you laugh. Um, but at the same time, following up on, you know, some of the, the critical issues we're all really caring about. So I would recommend our Thomas for, for our time, um, <laughs> because it certainly has gotten me through a lot of the political shenanigans that um, have been going on in addition to some of the more serious issues that we've been tackling the past year. Or so that's my recommendation.
1: All right. I am recommending uh, a new EP from Bacchae, a uh, B-A-C-C-H-A-E. Bacchae, a band based in D.C. It's a self-titled EP. Uh, the band is thoroughly rooted, I would say, in uh, D.C.'s punk and post-punk tradition, a tradition that I Love uh, and have much appreciation for. Um, this band is so good. They're uh, four relatively young people. Um, they their songs are really catchy. They have great hooks, which is important for me to to get into a song, especially for a new band. <laughs> For me, it's a perfect mix of, like, a really scuzzy, like, dirty-sounding guitars and this sort of, like, frantic percussion. And then then you'll have, like, a very sweet melody or, like, an organ in the background. Um, And... We're very lucky to have them at our live show on July 17th, which yeah. I swear is not the reason why I'm uh, <laughs> promoting their EP on this show. I just truly love them, which is why I asked them to play at our live show. So I think that's going to be a real treat. Um, I have a big soft spot in my heart for bands coming up um, in the punk and punk adjacent house show scene in DC. It's a really kind of a storied tradition and one that I have uh, dabbled in myself. Um, And I think this band represents all the things I love about it. They don't take themselves too seriously, but they write really good songs. Uh, They're generous with their time and their talents. They're playing a lot of awesome shows around DC um, and a lot of benefit shows, which is another thing that DC and a lot of punk communities uh, like to do. Um, They have a great song, Read, which I would specifically recommend for this audience. It's about um, kind of a pathetic dude who is hitting on a woman and the chorus just says, let me read my book alone. (laughs) Just let me read my fucking book. Um, And I heavily identify with that chorus. So come see them in D.C. next month, July 17th.
0: Slate.com slash live. (laughs) Thanks, June.
1: That's our show. Thank you so much to our producer and Beyoncé scholar, Verilyn Williams, and our production assistant, Daniel Schrader, for Latifah Lyles and June Thomas. I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.